So the story so far in John 13 is Jesus has told them life without him will be all about the cross. He said, that is where you are to look if you want to know how to live for Jesus. And do you remember last week, if you were around, he enacts this, this parable to them as he washes their feet. Do you remember it? He said, he said, look at the cross and see it is your means of cleansing. There you are made clean. But it's not about mud between your toes. It's about sin. That is where you are really dirty. That is what you need cleaning from. And he said, look at the cross and see it is your model for community. It's laying down your rights for the sake of others. It's being prepared to live a cross-shaped life. Jesus says, go and copy me. Treat Christians like this. And so we said, well, life for us in Magdalen Road at the moment, it feels a bit scary. It feels a little bit like the disciples were feeling because they were pretty daunted as they were recognising what life without him might mean. This growing realisation, they're going to have to learn to cope without him. In less than 24 hours, he's going to be dead. And for us, well, if you're a guest or a visitor here, let me fill you in. There are talks, there are plans afoot for, well, what's the Lord perhaps got in line for us coming next? Maybe it's planting, maybe it's developing this building so that we can be more intentional in, in discipling and training and sending people. At the very least, it's being the kind of church that we want to be. And so how are we going to do that? Well, Jesus says, look to the cross. Look at the cross. See that it is your means for cleansing and your model for community. Don't ever move on from the cross. (coughs) And before you can blink, the conversation in the upper room has shifted. Because the cross divides people. And we see that very clearly in our verses for this evening. The cross divides people. It was Polly Toynbee, writes for The Guardian, and she describes her hatred of the C.S. Lewis Narnia books. She wrote it uh, a while back in The Guardian. She said this, she said, Narnia represents everything that is most hateful about religion. The clunking allegory is toe-curlingly, cringingly awful. But of all the elements of Christianity, the most repugnant is the notion of the Christ who took our sins upon himself and sacrificed his body in agony to save our souls. Did we ask him to? People hate the cross. They hate it. They hate it for many reasons. They hate it because it speaks of our our sin, our profound me-centeredness. They hate it because it, it shows them the perfectly just God's anger against their sin. They hate it because it shows our inability to deal with our sin and to deal with God's anger against our sin. It shows our helplessness. People hate the cross. And so as John's account continues, I take it as no surprise as we get to the rest of chapter 13, you will see varying responses to the cross. John seems to ask us, off the back of the foot washing, what is your response to the suffering Jesus. And there are many answers to that. I think the passage gives us three in particular. The first one is, well, are you going to betray him? 
And here we've got Judas in the spotlight. Let me read again from verse 21 onwards. Uh, Pick it up with me at verse 21. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple to whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to his disciple and said, ask which he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And it continues. And Judas's shocking betrayal as he's given the bread and he goes out into the night, it feels rather like a, a dampener on their upper room meal. But it's, it's not out of the blue. If you were around last week, we saw, we saw Jesus picking something up from verse 11 of last time. He's already spoken during the meal that there's going to be something difficult going on. Do you see verse 11? For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. I take it in this passage, Judas represents to us those who don't do what Jesus tells them. He, he set his heart against it at all. He will sell his master's life and he himself will be dead in a few days' time. But as one writer puts it, as we, as we read John 13 and try and just understand what's going on, there are two things we need to be clear on. The first one is that Jesus knows and the second one is that Judas chose. So Jesus knows. You see that in verse 18. He says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. And for the careful reader of John, there has actually been a a thread, a stream going all the way through the Gospel. So that when we get to Judas here in the upper room, well, we oughtn't be surprised. We should have seen it coming. Let me read a few verses to you. So 6 verse 70 then, Jesus replies, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. John comments for us, he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. We'll fast forward a bit to chapter 12. Then Mary took about a pint of purinard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And so by the time we reach chapter 13 and verse 21 at the table, it's clear that Jesus knows what Judas is like. Jesus knows his people. He he knows what his people are like, regardless of the kind of masks that we wear. And so we say, well, is Judas just a pawn then? Is he just a a part in God's plan? Can he be culpable for his actions if it was what he was meant to do? How can we blame him for what he did if he was just what he was meant to do? Well, Judas, sorry, Jesus knows, but Judas chose. The Bible is full of this amazing concept whereby God is able to work despite of and in and through the actions of his people, even if they are evil and wrong, and yet he is not morally culpable for those actions. 
comfortably. I think it's something of a conundrum for us. We won't ever quite get it until we perhaps get to speak to him face to face. With our minds and our understanding, it's, it's difficult. Let me just give you another a famous example um, in the Bible to see if it helps. We're in Genesis. Um, we're with Joseph, him of the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Uh, and you remember, he is sold by his brothers as a slave to Egypt. And he ends up in Potiphar's household. And he ends up in prison. And he's there for years. He's there for decades. And it seems to me that two key things that God achieved through that was, number one, well, Joseph grows up a bit. And he's a bit more godly. And a bit nicer. But the second thing, as time goes by, you see he rescues Joseph's family. He, he rescues the very people who were to be God's people, uh, who were to be the family that Jesus would come from, who would then go on and rescue his people on the cross. When the brothers come at the end of Genesis, they come begging for forgiveness. Joseph is there. He's the kingpin of Egypt. He's under the Pharaoh. And he says to them, Genesis 50, verse 20, Don't be afraid. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So, are the brothers culpable, morally culpable, for selling Joseph for coins into slavery? Was it wrong? Yes. Did God use it and work through it and accomplish his purposes? Yes. Was Judas morally culpable for selling Jesus for silver coins? Was it wrong? Yes. Did God use it and work through it and accomplish his purposes through it? Yes. So Jesus hands Judas the bread to identify him as the betrayer to to John, we take it. And verse 30, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. And all Judas can look forward to from that time is night. John is always poetic and dramatic in the way that he writes. It's lovely. I take it the darkness is both ethical, it is a dark and an evil time. But it's prophetic as well. He has been cut off from the light of God. It's tragic. It's solemn. So in my mind, the danger with Judas is that we can too easily just wash our hands of him. He's cut off from Jesus now, and in our minds he's cut off from our experience too. He's miles away. But it strikes me that's a dangerous position to have. You point the spotlight back on church history, and you see people who seem to be going for it with great guns, and you end up betraying Jesus. They follow him, and it turns out they weren't his in the first place. And it's right for us to have assurance, and yet let Jesus' example be a warning, a rebuke, to keep trusting Jesus. Because when you turn the spotlight away from church history and into our own hearts, well, we know what we're like. Our hearts are susceptible Judas' last choice at the meal, it seems to me, was the end of a journey. 
This wasn't a bolt out of the blue. This was the destination that had been reached throughout the whole gospel. I'd urge you then, if you're a Christian here this evening, to, to stop it early. There's a story told of, of Perembi the hunter. He's searching for a leopard to kill. Uh, and leopard skins were worth many cows. Um, at the marketplace, and a leopard is found, and he successfully kills um, this animal, and, and he takes it to the marketplace. But, but he sees that the leopard he's killed is a, is a mother, and there's this baby leopard, and it's very cute. And so he takes it home as a pet for his children. But the village chief is not happy. He says that little leopards become big leopards, and big leopards kill. Perembri ignores the advice, and they bring up this leopard in a different way. They feed it on milk, and it grows into an adult, and it's kind to the children. And he seems to be in the right, and then one day it licks a wound, and it tastes blood. And its true nature becomes clear. And it kills the child, and it slays Perembi. So little leopards become big leopards. And big leopards kill. Little sins, they grow and they develop and they devour us. Whether it's just, whatever it is for you, wandering too many. Uh, selfishness with money. Just some harmless flirtation. Whatever it might be. And we end up saying, well, in for a penny, in for a pound. And before we know it, these things own us and ruin us. And so I think from Judas we need to say, stop it early. Let his example help us, warn us, warn against betraying Jesus. So our first case study then is Judas and its betrayal. The second is Peter and it's to deny so for the verse 30, for Judas, the future is darkness and it is night. <clears throat> verse 31, for Jesus, it is glory. It might not look like glory in our eyes. The cross looks horrible, but the drumbeat we've seen going through John again and again and again, week after week after week, is that Jesus will be glorified as he is lifted up. Not lifted up on a throne but on a cross. Not wearing a, a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. And he's glorified because we clearly see who the God of the Bible is. Again and again and again it turns our worldly ideas about power on their head. Glory in weakness. Glory in serving others. And being others-centred in displaying costly love. And so as Jesus is lifted up and he is glorified as he takes the sins of his people upon himself, so the Father is glorified and so the Father brings the glory to his obedient Son. And as always in the Gospels, Peter is impetuously bold, desperately bold. Peter knows better. Jesus says, well it means that you can't come with me. I won't be with you anymore. Peter says, of course I'll come. 
Verse 36. Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And it will come to pass. We will see in the next 24 hours that happening. The scene will move from a mealtime to a garden and from a garden to a courtyard. And where Peter will indeed disown Jesus. Where he will deny him, undone finally by some servants. Uh, This is 18 verse 26. One of the high priest's servants, the relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Now again, I think the danger with Peter is that we grin and we smile and we raise our eyebrows and we say, silly old Peter, he's always rushing ahead, he's always rash and hot-headed. But I want to say, in a sense, it's not funny, it's not a game. Why? Because Peter could not see what was in him. He did not know his own heart. Now I've got no doubt that Peter did love Jesus, and it was easy to shout this out here in the upper room. But the challenge is for a sober-mindedness for us. A sober-mindedness that means we're self-aware, that means we know what our hearts are like. We know our weaknesses. It's all too easy to be a Christian on a Sunday or when you're with other Christians or when you're singing songs or you're making promises for God. And then we must have a level of self-awareness that knows the true nature of our hearts. The way in which when the temperature rises... And the pressure comes and how easily we can crumple like Peter. And we can feel shame and we chicken out of that conversation. Or or we keep our mouth closed when we ought to speak up about Jesus. And it is becoming, I think, more difficult to be a Christian in this this country. I think I've, I've seen that over the last decade. Probably the last decade I've been in ministry. Now, we experience nothing like brothers and sisters around the world. I have no doubt that in years to come, the temperature will continue to rise and it will be more difficult, get more and more uncomfortable. And it seems to me, very often, in those harder times, that's when churches grow. It seems to separate those who are Christians and those who actually aren't. It seems to mean that as Christians, they they cling to the Lord more, they recognise their weakness, they lean on him more. And so now is our training ground, if you like, for what's to come. Because if you're anything like me, you can associate with Peter. And it's an encouragement in a way, but it's a big rebuke as well. Because we must be self-aware and know our hearts. Now the big encouragement is that Jesus reinstates Peter at the end of the Gospel. And I take it, he he transforms him when the Holy Spirit comes. So here's something Peter's going to write in years to come. You can find it in your Bibles in 1 Peter. Let me read it to you. It's from verse 12. He's writing to Christians who are suffering because they are Christians. And he says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 
If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear his name. Peter gets it. Something has happened to Peter. Finally, it's clicked. And so let the verses challenge you not to be like Peter, but be encouraged that he uses and he changes people like us. So, what, what is your response to the suffering Jesus? Do you betray him like Judas? Do you deny him like Peter? Or thirdly and finally, do you display him? This is verse 34 and 35. As John often does, he loves to to use contrasts to make his point. And to be honest, the right response to the cross is really the same one as last week. So, what is it? It is to love as Jesus loves So as the hours unfold, Jesus will be faithful to God and he will love his people and we will see how costly that is. But as the years unfold, we are to be faithful to God and to love his people and we will see how costly that is. Jesus is gone, but how is the world going to know he is real? How? Well, verse 34 and 35... And you command, I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must also love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Now there's loads that I would love to say about those verses. Um, but time is ticking, so I'm going to limit myself to two things. The first one is to say that love is the distinguishing mark of the church. Okay, love is the distinguishing mark of the church. If, if the head of the church, if Jesus is all about love, if he is marked by love, then I take it so is his body too. God is love, as John will go on and say in his first letter. Why? Because, because at the heart of the Trinitarian God... You find love. You find a father who loves the son, who loves the spirit. He loves the father and the son and the spirit. And on and on it goes. It's dynamic. It's other-centred. It's profound. It's beautiful. And so there's to be a family likeness in us. In fact, it is to be foundational to what we're like as church. It's fascinating. Churches are not about intellectual distinction. They're not about form and how they're organised. They're not about miracles. Churches are about love. I take that partly to be because, because you can't counterfeit love. It has to be authentic. Love one another. Three little words. Easy to say, incredibly hard to do. Of course, it's easier not to love. And some of us do that. C.S. Lewis famously said, Well, love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, then you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. 
lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken, but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Love is costly. It's, it's so much easier to hide our hearts away. It's so much easier. But look at the start of chapter 13. Because that option is not open for us. We're to be foot washers who look to the cross. We're to be those who serve, those who, who love. And it's costly. And to be completely blunt... When we gossip and when we squabble and when we slander and when we quarrel with each other, with other Christians, it, it brings, I think it brings to question the authenticity of our faith, at least in some senses. It seems we ought to choose to love, to plan to love, decide to love, open your, open your heart and your diary and your wallet and your life and, and love each other. Love, love in a costly way like your saviour because that is what marks a Christian. So, there's the first one. The second is love is the foundational element in evangelism. Secondly then, love is the foundational element in evangelism. And we need to get this right because an awful lot seems to rest on it, if you ask me. Love is not simply about shutting the doors of the hug, shutting the doors of the church, having a big group hug together. That is not why we love. Love is about showing the world what God is like. Again, I came across a fantastic quote from a, um, a guy based in Sheffield called Steve Timmis, who writes well on this sort of stuff. Um, let me read it to you. I find it very striking. He said, it remains the case today, this cross-love is the primary dynamic test of whether or not we have understood the gospel word and experienced its power. Not our doctrinal orthodoxy, as important as that is. Not our ingenious strategizing, as fascinating as that is. Not our commitment to preaching, as vital as that is. Not our innovative approach to planting, as radical as that may be, it is our cross-love for each other that proclaims the truth of the gospel to a watching and sceptical world. Our love for one another, to the extent that it imitates and conforms to the cross-love of Jesus for us, is evangelistic. And our friends say to us, well, you tell me about Jesus and how great he is, but then you go and act like that, or you complain about them, or you're so quick to criticise and you're so quick to grumble. It's striking, isn't it? How we love one another shows the world what God is like. Again, I think it's a relevant thing for us in our church life, where we are at this point as we think about maybe growing this building, or as we think about planting, or thinking about being more intentional in, in training and discipling and growing and sending, we cannot afford to let love go out the door. That the quality of our relationships, the quality of who we are in Christ, that that love must come first. Those relationships must shape everything. 
If we do those things at the expense of love, then I question whether we ought to be doing them. Verse 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So, to to reach Oxford, East Oxford, with the Gospel, how does this passage help us? I think it says to us, know firstly that the cross will divide people. There will be folk who will betray because they're just not keen on a, on a suffering servant like Jesus. There will be Peters who will be in a difficult place and will deny. And yet the positive for us seems to be that we need, we need to show the quality of our love as we look to the cross, as we live out the cross, as we display it to those watching the church. And you know as well as I do that we need the Lord's help to do that because we're not very good at it, because we do muck up. And so let me pray for us now and then we will sing.